This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 511's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 612 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Shay Eskew. Now, Shay is not only a member of the Human Performance Project team, but he himself was horrendously burned as a young child and had an incredible crucible physically and mentally that continues to this day. So we discuss a host of topics from overcoming childhood trauma, his physical rehabilitation, finding triathlons, becoming one of the most elite Ironmen on the planet, the Human Performance Project, Sons of the Flag, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. And one more side note, we did this recording right before I took a vacation with my wife and I was burnt out. And I made a huge rookie error after five and a half years of podcasting by not plugging in my own bloody microphone. So I sound a little echoey compared to normal, but that is the reason why I just know it's my own dingleberryness that <laughs> is behind what I find as an audio file, you know, a, a subpar audio quality on the mic. Luckily, Shay does most of the talking. I'm interviewing him. But uh, if it does sound a little different, that is why. So without further ado, I introduce to you Shay Eskew. Enjoy. Well, Shay, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking some time to come on the podcast. I know you've had a bit of a hectic day, so that makes it even more, um, makes me even more grateful that you were able to take the time today. Absolutely. You know, it's my pleasure. And honestly, not many days aren't hectic. That's what makes it worth living. Absolutely. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So today I'm in Detroit. Um, Tomorrow I go back home to Nashville and then I have to kids soccer all weekend and be in Atlanta Monday and then Memphis Wednesday. So that's the life we live now, you know, with uh, five kids playing travel soccer. <laughs> I feel like my weekends are busier than my work days. So I'm going to totally jump in on a tangent right now because this seems to come up a lot. Um, I've had you know high level athletes on here. I've had high level coaches on here. And one of the things they talk about is the environment that our children are in when it comes to sports. And, and there's a happy medium, obviously, between challenging our kids, exposing them to more challenging teams. But there's also a side that seems to be more money focused on some of these travel teams and some of these, you know, camps. Um, so with you being such a high level athlete yourself, what has been your perspective of the sports, um, that your children are involved in and how, how are you able to find that balance with them? Yeah, so for us, it's always been focused on, number one, are you having fun? Do you enjoy it, right? Like, you're not doing this for mom and dad. Do you physically 
experience happiness doing this? And then number two, when you do it, did you give it everything you have? If you can answer those two affirmative after every practice and game, keep doing it. But we tell our kids all the time, if you want to, you know, not compete anymore, that's fine. But you will find something that you will compete in, whether it's music, cross-stitching, I don't care. But you got to have something to fill the dead time. Uh, but I can tell you, sitting on the sidelines, I get so angry watching these parents get so riled up. They're yelling at their kids. They're yelling at the referees. I'm like, how is this fun? Do you think your kid really enjoys being called out for, you know, missing a ball or making a bad play? Let them be kids. Let them be, you know, let them play. We're supposed to be, the way I see it, just bystanders. You know, just take joy in watching them compete. Whether they win or lose, just enjoy the fact they're out there. I feel like that's been lost in youth sports. You know, I remind these parents all the time, you know, I've got five kids between 8 and 16, especially for the younger ones. I say, look, you realize there's no scouts out here today, right? Nobody's getting a college scholarship. So why do you care? Um, But I'm a big believer in – If you want your kids to take it seriously, show them by your own actions. Like I get up every morning at 4.30 and work out for two hours. I never have to tell my kids go work out. They think it's natural that people work out and compete. And so if you want your kids to compete at a high level, demonstrate it, right? And they'll see you living in there and say, hey, I want to be like mom. I want to be like dad because you've modeled that behavior. Whereas if you're the parent that's, you know, sadly out of shape and overweight, a couch potato, that's not a very compelling statement when you tell your kids, hey, you need to work harder. You need to get out there. Give it all you got. Because I believe the kids look at you and say, well, why don't you show me how to do it? Right. Well, I think that's a very, very um, pertinent part of this whole participation trophy discussion because i absolutely 100 percent agree that if you don't put any effort in that you shouldn't be rewarded however i perfect example my son did a triathlon uh about three years ago now about a year before the pandemic hit and it was a sunday morning you know all these kids were awake at you know probably 5 36 to get there it was uh you know it was it wasn't freezing but it wasn't a you know a beautiful sunny florida day and these kids were swimming and running and biking but only one kid out of these hundreds of each division got to win, but they all got a, a, you know, a medal because they showed up and they gave it everything they had. And what I see more often than not is people leading this whole snowflake participation trophy, as you said, are not walking the walk themselves. Anyone who's really been in the trenches physically understands that it's a, you can give a hundred percent, but only one person's going to win. But if right. you're not rewarding that hard work, you're sending the complete wrong message. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, I have such mixed emotions, you know, when it comes to youth sports. Uh, again, to me, it's just teaching people, hey, it's about not having a fear, a fear of failure. And, you know, and my kids have seen it. Like, I've had races where everything that could have went wrong went wrong. I had a race where literally – I had three flat tires. I ran six miles barefoot pushing my bike. 
And I crossed the finish line fourth from last. I thought I was going to be top 10 in the world. I finished fourth from last. But what was amazing is it landed me on the cover magazine of USA Travel because I could have very easily quit. And that's what I teach my kids. There's an important lesson to finishing what you start. Most people in life don't get that. They think, hey, things aren't going as planned. I just quit. But if you have that mentality that no matter how tough it gets, that you want to do whatever it takes to get across the finish line, life looks completely different. And that's one of the things I try to teach my kids. Uh, but it's also, you can have fun along the way. Like I took all the kids, I was competing in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I had been sick the whole week leading up to the, turn, uh, the race. It was a half Ironman. My wife said, this is stupid, you racing. Why would you do this? You're in so much pain, you can't even tie your shoes. I said, love, I've done 65 races and never not started and never not finished. When the run started, we had a half marathon, very challenging course. And as I'm running, I see my family, my wife standing out there. And if you know Scotland, it's not very friendly when it comes to weather. I was going to say, you probably didn't have sunburn on that particular race. (laughs) So it's like 60 degrees raining and they're standing out there. And I veer off the course to go over and hug my wife and kiss her, and give all the kids high five. Finish the race. Still pretty competitive. But two months later, uh, my son brought home a big picture he drew for school. And it says, have you ever been to Europe? I have. I cheered my dad on as he raced Ironman Edinburgh. And it said, my dad was sweaty and tired, but he came over and gave us high fives. I had that in my pain cave, in my workout room, serving as a reminder that, look, no matter how much pain you're in, how much, however hard it is, you can always find the strength to get through it, right? And what really keeps us going, it's our kids, right? Um, for me, it's not material things. It's knowing, hey, I don't want to let my kids down. They're counting on me. That is beautiful. That reminds me of, and this, this isn't an endurance story by any means, but I did a, a jiu-jitsu tournament with my son. Back then, his uh, his school had, for, for a couple of years, they actually had the adults, the, the, the you know, over-18 division as well. And so I entered and I'd done what we call nogi. So you wear just regular, you know, t-shirt and shorts, basically. And when I got there, they were like, well, we don't really have a nogi division. No one's entered that so can you go gi and i'd never even fought with a gi before but again like you i'm like well okay i mean i came here to to do it and this is totally you know at a disadvantage or whatever but it ended up perfectly i won one of my fights i lost one of my fights ty won one of his fights lost one of his fights so he watched his dad win and he watched his dad almost get choked out um, and so I have this amazing picture of him with his silver medal and me with my silver medal. And it's not about, did I win that day? He always remembers that. And that's one of my favorite pictures that I have up. Yeah. And I think, you know, in this world now, kids don't learn the value of not quitting. You know, they're taught that immediate gratification. Uh, my middle son, when he started soccer, he was in the lowest team. They had five teams. So he was on number five, the bottom. He was so upset after tryouts, he was placed on the bottom. I said, buddy, where did you expect? Do you think you should be on the top teams? 
this is your first year playing. He goes, no, but dad, I'm on the worst. And I was like, but guess what? The only place you can go is up. Everybody else can fall down. A month later, he got moved up to number four. Two months later, it got moved up to number three. Now it's been three years. He's on the second team. And so every season after tryouts, I remind him, hey, remember where you started. And I think that's what so many of us forget in life is look at where we started. Right. When you're at where you're at now, don't forget what you had to overcome to get to where you are today. I think it just kind of gives you that renewed sense of, man, I can do hard things. And just put it in perspective of whatever you're dealing with today, if you go back and look at stuff you've overcome in the past, you know you can do it. You just got to jump right in. Absolutely. Well, I think another analogy that parallels, you know, your experience with your son is uh, what I see being from a, another country originally. And I talk about this quite often. You know, there's a lot of chess beating, a lot of, you know, we're the greatest country in the world. But that only comes, you know, and everyone should be proud of the country that they're in, but that comes from putting the effort in. And recently, I've seen a lack of investment in community and your fellow man and woman. And yet this expectation, I'm just going to walk in and I'm going to be in the top team is my first ever time on a soccer game. Well, that's not how it works. And it's the same with a nation, you know, sadly, I feel like the last couple of years showed how easily we were divided, which is heartbreaking, really. But I hope now people coming out of this, people realize that we all have to roll up our sleeves and put in the work in our own communities where we can make a difference. And obviously, we're going to talk about something that you're a part of with, with Ryan. Um, and each one of us does that. We can raise our countries up to where they should be and knowledge share and have the humility to learn from other people that are doing it really well and bring it into whether it's our household, our community or our nation. Yeah, I would agree. And I think one of the things like, you know, a lot of people poo poo social media because it glamorizes life. Right. But if you really look out there, there's a lot of people doing a good job of giving you insight into their challenges. So that you understand, hey, look, this little movie star life you see these people posting is not real life. Uh, but here's what I've went through. Here's how I get through it. And you can learn so much by other people sharing how they get through those struggles. And it's also a reminder of people that you're not alone. Right. Whatever it is you're going through, somebody has been through it and they've not only survived, but they thrived. And it's encouraging people. Hey, look, if you need help, reach out. And that's the thing I know, you know, especially in the uh, veteran community, it's they need help more than ever, right? Because of what you all have experienced, it's, and I think they realize that. And people are going, I think, to new levels to support those that need the, the mental health and the physical health support they can get. But I really do feel like adversity brings us all closer. It makes us realize just how limited our time here is on earth and then we need others um, and that we're not immune to hardships that no matter how much money you have, you can still die. You can still get sick. You can still lose it all. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's it. And, and the Instagram era, as you said, the, the highlight reel people can be very discouraging. I think to, People looking on, well, you know, I'm, all I see is Shay winning these, these, you know, Ironman, uh, events. I'm not even going to bother. There's no way I could do it in this time. 
But again, when you're vulnerable and you're honest and you show your bad days, then it humanizes the person and then it inspires them. And I've had so many people on the show, you know, that have lost limbs in combat or, you know, like yourself and, and several others that were burn injured. I mean, all these, these, these tragedies that have gone on to do phenomenal things and use that pain, um, which I know is something you talk about a lot. So I would actually love to start on that journey before we get too deep in, in a bunch of tangents. Um, so you, you know, you, you forged the life that you've got through your journey and obviously one chapter was particularly traumatic you know the uh, element of your childhood so let's start at the very very beginning though so tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings sure so i was born uh in atlanta georgia 1974 uh traditional southern baptist family right two parents one kid um but we grew up very hard, very middle blue collar. My parents divorced by the time I was four, but had an extremely active dad. Um, faith was a big part of my upbringing, right? We went to church every Sunday, loved Jesus, uh, did well in school, did well in athletics, but my life took a turn for the worse, arguably the best now. But in 1982, when I was just eight, I'll never forget that day, August 4th. My mom had asked me to warn my neighbors about an aggressive yellow jackets nest they had in the ground. So if you're not from the South, maybe you don't understand, but the yellow jackets are bees. They love to sting you, very aggressive, but they build a nest in the ground and they had swarmed my entire bicycle the day before. So I recruited my seven-year-old friend. Again, I was eight. I walked across the street. We knocked on the door. The dad wasn't home but the 15 year old daughter was. And as we proceed to tell her about the nest, she asked us to show her. Now I preface this by saying I had the most conservative parents you've ever met, right? They didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't cuss. I wasn't allowed to go to spend the night parties, couldn't go to firework shows. If there was any chance anything bad could happen, I couldn't participate. And so as we're walking towards this nest, she starts to tell us, hey, look, I need you guys to help me get rid of them. I said, what do you want to do? She goes, I just need y'all to stand here and watch them. She grabs a match, strikes it, and drops it right by the nest. Now, we all know a match in and of itself does nothing. So we're standing there like 10 feet away, watching these yellow jackets fly in and out of the hole. Without saying a word, she picks up a cup of gasoline, pitches it between us, hits me on the right side of my body, hits my face, my neck, my shoulder, hits my buddy on the left side of his face, Hits that spark of a match. Within an instant, we're engulfed in flames. And it's interesting because like, you just wonder, like, what goes through your brain when that happens, right? My first reaction was, these bees are going to sting us. So I ran to my yard just right across the street. And luckily, I had the wherewithal to stop, drop, and roll. I had watched, there was a show called Cold Red. It was about firefighters. And every show, they ended the show by teaching kids stop drop and roll how i remember that as an eight-year-old on fire honestly it's just a miracle from god but i did so i put my fire out and as i looked back up i see my buddy standing there screaming flames covering his whole body i ran back across the street ran up grabbed a water hose and put him out now I remember just standing there alternating the hose over the top of our heads 
our bodies were charred, skins melted. I touched my hair, all of it came out. My clothes were melted to my body. And all I could think is, man, what just happened? In those three minutes, my entire life trajectory was forever changed. Everything I dreamed about was completely gone out the door. Spent the next three months in the hospital. My right ear had to be amputated because of gangrene. My right arm was physically melted to my body. It took three years for me to lift my arm over my head. I had to learn how to write left-handed to finish the third grade. Uh, I had several skin grafts, which is where they take skin from your legs to transplant to the repair the burned skin. Got infected and lost several of those. By the time it was all said and done, over 65% of my body was permanently covered in burn scars. They took all the skin from my right leg, from my hip to my ankle, all the way around. All the skin from my left leg, from my hip to my knee. They took half of my back. They took a section three by eight out of my stomach, a section three by six off my buttocks. And then believe it or not, 40 years later, I had a surgery three months ago where they took a section of skin three by six inches out of my back with its own blood supply, fatty tissue, everything, and sewed it into my neck, right? I mean, it's just amazing what they can do. But I think it's one of the things most people don't comprehend how traumatic burn injuries are. I know you get it. With your experience, you've seen it. But it's one of the few traumas they can't fix. I mean, it's a lifelong. I've had over 40 surgeries in the last 40 years now. Uh, but it really set my whole life in motion. You know, I learned very quickly at eight that life's not fair. And if you're not willing to do it for yourself, nobody else is. But one of the things that really sunk in is it became very apparent to me that in life we have two choices. So when people tell me they don't have a choice, you always have a choice. Number one, do nothing. Play the victim card and feel sorry for yourself. A lot of people are very good at that. The second choice is make the most of a bad situation. Let the past be the past, but focus on what you can do as opposed to what you can't do. Fortunately, that was the path I took at eight. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough that after three years, I was able to lift my arm over my head, slowly started forging myself back into an athlete. I was a competitive wrestler all through high school, got inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, was a three-time boxing champion in college, got inducted into their Hall of Fame, and then got into a little sport called Ironman, which is you probably familiar with, you swim 2.4 miles, you bike 112, and then you run a 26.2-mile marathon. Um, the past six years, I've been ranked top 1% in the world. And I don't say that to be boastful, but it's to say thank you to those doctors in 1982 who told me I would never play sports again. Again, I don't know if they meant to do this, but they fired me up. Because if you really want to get me worked up, tell me there's something I can't do. I promise you, I will spend every waking breath trying to prove you wrong. And that's what they did, you know. And over the years, I've just learned things don't happen overnight. They take months, if not years, you know, to spend three years lifting your arm up, 
that was a game changer for me. And it's something that I've applied to every aspect of my life now is I know the best things don't happen in months or even years. Sometimes it's decades. And I know what happens if you commit to seeing it through. I mean, there's so much to, to kind of unpack in, in that journey. The first one I think that jumps to my mind is I've had some firefighters on here who were burn injured. One of my friends, Dustin Hawkins, was so articulate. I mean, he had me almost in tears talking about it. But he describes a debrading process um, as I, I forget how long it took. Let's say it was it was an hour. And he said, I found myself looking at the clock. The th first 30 minutes, you know, I was waiting for that hour to be done. But the second 30 minutes, I knew that in 23 hours, I was going to be back on this table again. So this is a fully grown man, just, you know, totally drugged up, still in agony. So now we go to an eight-year-old boy. So how did you endure the horrendous pain that I hear, you know, the, the treatment for bird injuries bring with it? You know, it's, again, I think a lot of comes back to my strength and faith. I believe God never gives us more than we can handle. You know, one of the things a lot of people don't realize, so in 1982, the strongest thing we got for pain was extra strength Tylenol. We didn't get morphine or opioids. You know, I remember the doctor coming by and cutting off part of my ear while I was awake multiple times. Every couple of days, he'd pull out a pair of scissors from his surgical jacket. He'd say, all right, and he'd clip it till it started bleeding. He'd say, all right, now we've got healthy tissue. The whole time you're screaming, you know, uh, but that debris, I mean, we were wide awake for that when they would dip us in these tanks and scrub it. And I remember, I mean, to this day, every morning at 7 a.m. when there's nursing changes and they'd start changing your dressings, you'd hear the other half the hospital screaming. And these are all kids. So I was in a pediatric hospital and you knew an hour later, it's your turn, Right. That went on for three months. Every day you hear kids screaming twice a day, 7 a.m., 7 p.m. Honestly, I don't know how you get through it. You know, each day you say, hey, I know what's coming. But one of the things that helps is as you would look around the hospital, you'd see people so much worse than you. And I'll never forget, we had this little five-year-old girl that she grabbed her dad's lighter, lit it, and it blew up in her face. And it melted her face down to her chest. Two holes for a nose. I mean, just horrific what had happened. But every day she was smiling. You're like, if this little girl is smiling, how could I dare cry about this, right? And so that's, for me, it's always been one of those, just kind of put it in perspective. You know, as a parent, you know, as you can imagine with five, there's moments where we question our sanity. And I tell my wife, I said, you know what? How many parents would love to have five bratty kids? How many parents with special needs kids or they lost a kid or couldn't have kids would love to have the problems we're having where they're acting out, right? It's great that we have that problem. Just like I tell my kids when they're complaining their legs hurt. Well, go tell that to the guy who has no legs. He would love to have leg pains. To me, these are all affirmations that, look, if I'm feeling the pain, I'm still alive. That's encouragement. And I look back on it now, you know, 40 years later, like I don't get pain meds. I don't do the opioids, any of that stuff. I just go pain-free or drug-free. 
because I'm so scared of developing, you know, some kind of addiction to anything. But I also know that what I went through as an eight-year-old prepared me for these bigger things where I just don't feel the pain anymore. You just block it out. So much of pain is mental. You know, like you talked about the firefighter saying, hey, you know, the first 30 minutes, to me, it's, I look at it in days. Hey, if I can get through the next two days, not a problem. Then when that two days comes up, hey, two more days. If I can get through that, I know I'm out of the woods. Before you know it, you're out of the woods. Uh, but don't give up just because you don't see the results you want in those two days. And that's what happens with everything in life. We love to put a time around it and say, hey, if I don't see an improvement by one week, I'm quitting. To me, I just use that to break things up. For instance, like when I'm running an Ironman, people always say, and how do you run a 26.2 mile marathon after bike 112 miles? It's easy. All I'm doing is running one mile 26 times. I'm not running 26, right? And when you run that mile, say, hey, I just got to do one more. And so I applied that all the way back as a child. said, look, if I can just get through today, then I'll tackle tomorrow. When I get through tomorrow, I'll tackle the next day. Don't get your head all wrapped around what it's going to take to get to a full recovery. Now, I heard you discuss this on the Sons of the Flag podcast, but I'd love to pull this out from you. You you mentioned about not being or not seemingly being like the most gifted athlete. And now you have, you know, obviously the, the uh, I guess the, would be the right word, constricting element of the burns themselves. But you were discussing about the mindset that you got. So here we are, eight-year-old child enduring everyone's worst nightmare. I mean, fire has to be, you know, probably the worst thing that can happen to anyone. And I've witnessed it, you know, sadly many times as a firefighter as well. Um, but now mentally you've gone to that place. You've created this mindset, at, you know, eight, nine, 10, where you're able to compartmentalize, you know, small micro goals to get through. How did that then pay out when it came to your introduction back into athletics and then competition? That's a great question. You know, one was the people that are naturally gifted don't know what it's like to have to work hard. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, right? They take it for granted. For me, like I came from nothing. Like I couldn't even throw a ball overhand, you know, for years. When I first started playing baseball, I couldn't throw overhand. So my dad put me at second base and I'd throw the ball underhand to first base. But I was so thankful just to compete. That's what people are saying. Like, if you had that heart of gratitude that, hey, I'm just thankful to be out here, anything that I can do to me is a blessing. And so each year I started seeing some improvements. I started regaining some of the mobility, dexterity that I had had, but never to the full level. But what I realized was if there was a sport that required finesse or touch, golf, tennis, basketball, I, I couldn't be competitive. But if it was a sport that required all-out effort, last man standing, whoever could withstand the highest amount of pain comes out on top. Those are sports I did well in. That's why I did well in wrestling, boxing, triathlon. Because it's not who's the fastest, it's who slows down the least. And that's what you realize. That's what life's about. Like Some people come out of the gate sprinting. That's great. 
you know, talk to me 10 hours from now and tell me how fast you're going. And that's where I've done well in sports and in life in general. It's just, it's a game of attrition because people give up once the going gets tough because they don't know what it's like to to truly give it everything. They don't know what it's like to, you know, like that race I was telling you about run six miles barefoot, pushing a bike. To me, that was a given. I was willing to do it 20 miles. If I had to, I was going to do whatever it took. And once you adopt that mindset and you know that you're not going to die, that physically you're capable, mentally you're capable, life's easy. You know, and I've been fortunate too. I've got a wife who supports me too. That when we've had hard times, again, we have, like we lost our house, you know, in the housing recession, 08, we lost our house. She didn't panic. She didn't question our marriage. She said, look, I trust you. You have never let us down. No matter how hard it gets, I'm always right here. And I think if you know that in life, man, you can tackle anything, right? Absolutely. Just so you know, I lost my house too. And it wasn't right after that. There was a divorce involved, but yeah, as a, as a ripple effect. So yeah. And it was full on bankruptcy. And for, yeah. for a man with an ego, that was crushing for a bit. And then you realize it's just a house and your family are healthy and you still can put a roof over their head and food on the table. And it's just, yeah, you just start rebuilding brick by brick again. Well, and I thought it was one of those things too, is kind of a way, you know, don't be scared about it. Don't, you know, some people say, I can't believe you talk about it. It's my book. Like it's who I am. It's shaped where I'm at today. Because once you've hit rock bottom, you know, you can dig yourself back out of it. And if you read any successful stories of entrepreneurs, they all have a common element. They hit rock bottom because you had those epiphanies. Like when you hit the bottom, you know, it's sink or swim, right? And you figure it out what you need to do differently. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not prideful about it, but it is a part of my story and it's allowed me to look at things differently. Now, speaking of, of finances, I guess, um, you're going through all these treatments as you start getting into high school. What are you dreaming of becoming um, career-wise? It's interesting. So I had dreamed of being an architect my whole life. You know, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And then when I got into college, I, you know, spent a couple of years in architecture. And I was like, this isn't quite what I thought it was. And I'll never forget, we had a guest lecturer and, he's, and I was at the University of Tennessee. He goes, hey, you guys know this building downtown Knoxville? We're like, yeah. He goes, that cost me my first marriage. I was like, Okay. And then he said, hey, do you know this building? We're like, yeah. He goes, that cost me my second marriage. I was like, wow. And so that I immediately called a buddy of mine whose dad was, his company was building the Georgia Dome. So he arranged for me to meet with the architects. And they walked me through, hey, for your first five years out of school, you're probably drawing bathrooms and closets. And here's the pay you're going to make. Really? (laughs) That's not what I envision. And then, you know, my parents have always been one of those, hey, do what makes you happy. So I got a degree in wildlife biology. And so I spent six months living in the woods, trapping bears for a living. 
Now, as you can imagine, that pays really well, $75 (laughs) a week. (laughs) You know, but the part my parents didn't say is do what makes you happy, but also pays your bills. You know, that was a small caveat they left out. So after six months of doing that, again, I loved it. Great stories. You know, how many people can say they've been attacked by a bear? Uh, it didn't really help my dating life. Like, I really thought if I told that story at the bar, girls would be like, man, you know, Grizzly Adams kind of guy. <laughs> but I went, I applied for MBA school. Didn't have time to study, just signed up, took it three days later. And I'll never forget sitting in the interview with the admissions director. She goes, Shay, I got to admit, you're the first person I've ever seen with a black bear trapping background. And she was really impressed. But then she called me back two hours, or she called me back the next day. She said, Shay, the dean would like to meet with you. Can you be here in two hours? And I said, ma'am, my best friend is walking across the stage graduating. I gave him my word I'd be here to cheer mom. I can't miss it. Tell the dean that if my scores and my experience aren't good enough, I understand, but I can't miss this. And I hung up. She called me back in five minutes and said, congratulations, you're in. Beautiful. Now, fast forward 19 years later, she called me, had me come speak to the MBA class at the University of Tennessee and share with them my story. Of all these very intelligent people in my class, I'm the only one that's spoken to the program. So I just say, it's just funny how things play out, right? I'm in healthcare now. Um, Just started today. It's my first day. Chief sales officer for a healthcare technology company. And it's all these experiences that have allowed me to get to where I am. It's not any one. It's the culmination of all these, right? It's these extreme highs and lows that I've experienced that have allowed me to have this opportunity I have now. That's amazing. Well, I want to get to the bear for a second. So, (laughs) because I mean, you know, how many bear trappers do we have on this podcast? Not many. Um, Ironically, I worked in a place called Long Lake, New York for six summers in a summer camp. The, the symbol for the town was a bear. The, my friend who was on the maintenance side would go to the dump all the time. He said there'd be bears everywhere. Yep. I never saw a bloody bear the whole time I was there. And I was so like, you know, disappointed. Um, so that being said, a totally irrelevant anecdote I just told you. Um, what are some of the, the myths maybe that you uncovered for the average person when it comes to the bear population, whether it's how they're kind of getting into the the populace or, you know, are they uh, in somewhat da- endangered or any, any kind of things that, that you did pull away from that, that the average person might find interesting? Yeah. You know, I mean, just to give you an idea. So we caught 150 bears in the first three months. That's a lot of we bears. Call, yeah, we call it. You're telling the guy hasn't seen one. He told me he saw 150. <laughs> well, if you come with me, I can take you because a lot of it's knowing their movement patterns and the times of day, you know, their early morning, late evening. We call it six bears in one day on one trap line. So we use live leg snares. So we would catch them with a six foot piece of aircraft cable attached to a tree, bait them in, but they were caught by one paw. And they could run around a tree six feet in every direction. 
we would come in with a three-foot aluminum pole with a syringe mounted on the end of it. There was two of us. One guy's job was to distract the bear. The other guy's job was to sneak up, poke the bear in the hip, get out of its reach because it takes 20 minutes for the drug to work. Right? I mean, how, how do you convince 22-year-old boys to do this for $75 a week? <laughs> I would have done it for free, honestly. But the thing that you learn out there is truly wild bears are scared of humans. Like if they catch your scent, they won't be anywhere near you. But they're extremely curious. Like I spent three months in the Okefenokee Swamp. We would catch them using orange flagging or Coke cans because they'd want to come check it out. That's how we bait them in is putting orange flagging up. They'd want to come check it out. We would have them track us in the woods, not to hunt us, but just to see who we are. Um, one of the things that kind of blew me away is given the opportunity, bears will walk on their same footprints over and over again. So you could find places where their footprints are sunken in like three inches. So part of us getting them to get step in our trap, we would make fake bear prints with our hands and try to space them out so that they would step these, then they would step inside our snare. It's crazy. Um, but one of the myths is, you know, people say, hey, run zigzags. These guys run, these are black bears. They run 35 miles an hour, uphill, downhill, sideways. They climb a tree. I've seen them jump out of a tree 15 feet up, hit, roll, take off running. Now, with a black bear, you do not play dead. You make yourself look as big as possible. It works. I've had one bull rush me from about 100 meters out. And it just so happened I had one of my fraternity brothers with me and I was taking him to show him where the red wolves were being reintroduced into the wild. I knew the wolf biologist. And as we're walking, we see a bear hundred meters out. I said, Jim, watch this. We're going to scare this bear. So this bear is in a big patch of huckleberry, just vegetating. And I jump up and start yelling, Hey bear, Hey bear. This thing stands upright. He's on hind legs and he's sniffing around. And I said, Jim, watch out. He's going to charge. He can't get our scent. And the first thing he does, he comes down all fours. They start slamming the paw down. Their ears go back and they start huffing. They go. <laughs> so, Jim, here he comes. Whatever you do, do not run. So I'm standing there. I got my arms over my head, waving it back and forth. And I'm screaming, hey, bear, hey, bear. It's running full speed at us. And I'm like, I hope this works. I hope this works. I hope this works. <laughs> and this thing gets about 15 feet from me, then stops and starts walking towards me. I'm going into panic mode. I see a big log. I pick it up. Adrenaline's coming through me, and I'm screaming. Finally, the bear gets five feet from me, catches my scent, takes off. My heart's coming out of my chest. My buddy's behind me, so I'm trying to play it cool, and I turn around and said, Jim, this guy's already like 40 feet behind me. And he's like, dude, two more feet. You were on your own. But long story short, making yourself look as big as possible does work with black bears. See, I love these tangents. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Oh. <laughs> oh, I've had two bears fight each other. We've had to break it up because one of them was our bear. He was caught by one claw, so it wasn't really fair. He's fighting with one hand behind his back. We had a wolf, I mean, a bear climb into the wolf pen. 
It's like a 30 by 30 acclimation pin. So me and another guy had to go jump on the wolf with a cargo net. I know you guys are probably calling BS on this, but I've got pictures. And then another guy's job was to chase the bear out of the pin. But when you spend that amount of time in the woods, because we were out there about 12 to 14 hours every day, man, it's just unreal what you see. It seems like so much wasted potential when it comes to YouTube and social media. If you'd filmed all oh. these <laughs> these events, you would have you would have been uh, insta famous. <laughs> oh, if we'd have had this back then, because like we took pictures posing with the bears once we tranquilized them or, or right before it, and so I've got pictures wrestling with these 400, 500 pound bears. But if I'd have had a video like us tranquilizing them, because again. The bears got six feet of cable plus their reach. We've got a three foot pole. So if you do the math, they've got three feet plus reach on us. And I mean, it was taking your life in your hands every time to get inside that circle, poke it in the hip and get out of its reach before it grabs you. That's crazy. Now it's, you, you said you were doing wrestling, which obviously the bear would have been a great partner for and then boxing was it that work that got you into the running side? Like when the, the wire broke, for example? You know, it's interesting. Um, like I'm a big believer in God kind of puts people in our life at the right time when we need it most. And like so many of us, so once I got married, uh, put on some pounds. And when I'd go to the gym, I'd focus on the gun show, right? It's all about big chest, big biceps, wanted to look good in the T-shirt. And I was actually 40 pounds bigger than what I am now. So I got up to 185 pounds and I worked in a big high rise downtown Atlanta. Every day at lunch, I'd go work out. One day I was 33, this big barrel chested 65 year old man came up to me. He's got a flat top haircut, just something about him says pure military, right? He goes, hey, tough guy. I said, you talking to me? He goes, yeah, I'm talking to you. He goes, why don't you come in here and do my little boot camp class? Just me and a bunch of women. Shouldn't be anything for a guy like you with all your muscles. Completely new. He had every button, right? I'm like, whatever, old time. So I go in there, sure to form, I'm the only guy in there. And we are doing nothing but core. Planks, leg raises. These women are kicking my butt, and they're loving it. I mean, I'm in tears. Finally, the last 15 minutes, we get down to doing push-ups. I'm like, I'm going to bury this old bird. He doesn't know who he's messed with because I could do a lot of push-ups. But my core was so weakened, I couldn't keep up with it. So he drops down beside me. He's doing four-count push-ups, calling him out. And he goes, Eskew, ponytails is kicking your butt. You better pick it up, boy. And when a 65-year-old man calls you boy, the only adequate response is, yes, sir. I was so embarrassed. I went home that night and told my wife I got my butt kicked by a 65-year-old man. She was just laughing because she knew what was going to happen. It was on. I was back in his class the next day and every day thereafter. What I didn't know then is he was a Marine drill sergeant. He was one of the original 1978 Ironman finishers, and the guy ran 10 miles a day. So I dropped 25 pounds the first two months, was back in fighting shape, and we became close friends. And during that same time, he got diagnosed stage four pancreatic. And so we talked about that. Like, 
the unfairness of life. He said, Shay, I've done everything the good book teaches us. Serve the country, faithful to my wife. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Good father. I'm going to die here in a few months from cancer. I said, Henry, I was eight years old. What could an eight-year-old possibly do to ever deserve his entire body set afire? I said, crap happens, dude. Like, we got to move on. And he agreed. And we. And so right before we lost Henry, a group of us said, Henry, we're going to do the next big triathlon, Your Honor. We don't care the distance. Just so happened it was a half Ironman. We did the race. And just so the audience knows, before the race, I had not ran since high school. I had not biked. I didn't even own a bike. I had to buy a $500 bike off Craigslist, a bright green road bike. Had never swam. So I had to learn how to swim. Like I've swam in a pool, but never competitively, putting your face in the water. So after the race, finished five hours, 38 minutes. And I said, that wasn't that bad. Imagine if I knew what I was doing. That night, we're all celebrating, having a few beers. And somebody said, let's do the same race twice. The full Ironman's five months from today. So I signed up that night. Nobody else did. The day before the race, I ran into Henry's daughter. Just so happens. Again, I don't know how this stuff happens. She said, Shay, you know daddy's going to be watching you tomorrow. I said, I know. She goes, no, I mean it. This is the one-year anniversary of daddy passing away. Like, how does that happen? Like, I didn't even... When I registered, I just went with the spirit. You know, you feel it, you just go with it. Had a great race, finished 10 and a half hours. I was like, man, what if I knew what I was really doing, you know? But it kind of lit a fire in me and said, hey, what else in life can I do that I've just never attempted? Um, So since then, I've done over 42 Ironman and half Ironman races. I've raced all six continents, was in Israel in November, got to swim in the Sea of Galilee as part of the race. Very spiritual. But then people I've been connected with is what truly makes it. You know, I tell everybody, if you go to any kind of ultra endurance event, everybody's got a story. Everybody's battling something, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, you name it, right? We're all dealing with something. And for me, the training has been always a great outlet to deal with those demons. And then that allows you to attack every other aspect of your life because you learn how to compartmentalize, be better with your time management, set goals and priorities. And it works in every aspect of life. And then for me, it's become a lifestyle, right? So I take my kids everywhere. Like I'm racing in Finland next year. I'm taking all the kids to that. I don't know. It's I'm extremely lucky to say the least. Now, you mentioned that he had competed in the original 1978 Ironman. It's, again, it's amazing how God the universe works because I just had a conversation with a friend last night. I coached at a, a CrossFit, a couple of CrossFit classes. And, uh, he was talking about a guy who he knew because I told him about what 7X was. And he was like, Oh, I know a guy who's done that. And he was talking about the continents and the marathons. And I was like, really? He said, yeah, I just did Kokoro camp, which is a Navy SEAL boot camp they do for 48 hours. Um, and so he mentioned a PJ who was one of the trainers who has done seven marathons and seven continents in seven days. So I'm going to look him up in a set while I ask you this first, but he said in talking to this guy originally, 
the uh, the Iron Man swim was actually in the ocean, and then a few years later it ended up in the bay because a lot of people didn't want to have the open water swim. Have you ever heard any of those kind of folklore tales in in your world now? Um, I mean, it's still in the ocean. Like you can't swim two point four miles in the bay. Um, a lot of it's done just to make it more spectator friendly. Like I've done the one in Hawaii. Um, I've done a lot of open water swims. Like I'm going to tell you, swimming in Maluluba, Australia was kind of scary. You know, the cleaning staff at the hotel, I guess they were trying to make me feel, but I said, hey, they put out the shark fencing a couple of days ago. And I'm like, shark fencing? What the heck is that? Is that really supposed to make me feel better? Uh, so, I mean, we're swimming out there. You know, the difference I've seen recently. So when I did it, you had 2,400 people starting at one time and it's called a washing machine. And if you ever see an aerial photo of it, it looks like a washing machine because bodies are getting churned up. People swim over you, through you, you know, and you got to tell yourself the whole time, Hey, stay calm. Don't panic. But now Kona, they do, um, Staged releases, right? So every couple of minutes, a different age group goes out. So it's not as dramatic. But what people don't realize is, so back in the original Ironman, like one of the guys I know from 78, he did it in cutoff blue jeans. He said, if you ever want to have a chafing story, come, come talk. <laughs> Put on Daisy Jukes. <laughs> uh, the guy, Henry, I know, he had never ridden a bike. He borrowed his... Um, platoon commander's bike did not shift gears. So he's always in the wrong gear. And so he said he taped a towel to his seat thinking the extra cushion would help him again. He was so chafed he couldn't hardly walk. And then for sports drinks, you got to think in 78, nobody, this was before Gatorade or anything. So he made a nutrition drink out of eggs and milk. The last thing you want to drink in a Hawaiian sun Right. I think he even said he threw up a couple of times. Oh, I'm sure I threw up an omelet. <laughs> but that's this like it's these original pioneers that went out and proved, hey, we're just gonna get through it. Whatever it takes, it won't be pretty, but we're just gonna gut it out. That's amazing. The guy that, that he was referencing, his name is uh Robert Hamilton Owens. Does that ring a bell at all? It doesn't to me. Um yeah. I don't know if I know him. Sorry. No, it's okay. Because so he's he's I think he was a PJ Air Force Special Operations from back in the day. So he's someone that I'm going to try and connect with so that we can get Ryan talking to him and, and you guys can pick his brains on you know the the pros and cons of the way he was able to do it. Um, well, he was doing the seven X. You mean? Yes. Yeah, he's done the seven yeah. X before, but obviously not Marathon. not the way that you guys are doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a few buddies that have done that. The okay. World Marathon Challenge. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, because Brian was telling me it was a thing, but we'll obviously talk about you know the the additional elements to to the one that you guys are doing. Um, I just want to slide one thing in quickly because it, it occurred to me earlier. I didn't ask you. You mentioned when you were a child that your friend was also burned. What was his recovery like? Yeah, you know, if you remember, I said, "Look in life, we have two choices." play the victim card or make the most. Uh, sadly, they chose the former. Uh, his parents kept him home, did not send him back to school. Nobody knows what happened to the kid. Uh, we never saw him again. 
Um, and it's not that uncommon because burn scars are so traumatic. Again, visually, that's what people are realize. Like people see me now and think I've always looked like this. You know, when I was back in school, Nightmare on Elm Street had just been released. People called me Freddy Krueger. And when I looked in the mirror, I saw Freddy Krueger staring back at me. For years, I would not look at the right side of my face in the mirror because I didn't want to be reminded of that horrible scar because I knew it wasn't going anywhere. And so one of the things that I had to do was kind of learn to adapt self-deprecation, right? You got to learn to laugh about it. And so those same kids, and they say, hey, Shay, or they wouldn't say Shay, they say, hey, Freddie. I turn and say, yes, I'll see you in your dreams tonight. <laughs> and so that kind of put an end to that, you know, and people all the time as a kid would say, hey, where's your ear? They're like, what are you talking about? Because I got a prosthetic now, but for the first 25 years of my life, I didn't have an ear, no right ear. So people come and say, hey, what happened to your ear? I was like, what are you talking about? They said, you don't have an ear. I said, yes, I do. And I'd say, oh, shit. <laughs> you help me. And so I've had kids diving in swimming pools looking for it. I told parents I was attacked by a shark, you know, wading out in the beach about waist deep. And so you just learn to have fun with it, right? We can't change the narrative. But, man, we sure can't have a lot of fun with it. And you just have to embrace it. And I think once people see that you're comfortable with who you are, then they're comfortable with it. But that's what I think life's all about is we project our own strengths and weaknesses. So if there's something we're not comfortable with, we project it and everybody sees it. But if we say, look, hey, I'm comfortable. 65% of my bar body is permanently scarred. There's nothing you can say that will bother me. That resonates. And it's not an issue. But if, if you're insecure about it, then it, it will come across and people will pick up on that. You know, it's interesting. When I was young, I was very, very small for my age. I've got dry skin. I had basically a white man's afro when I was a kid, that bright blonde and, you know, sticking out everywhere. And as I went through kind of, you know, especially high school level, when I look back now, I realize that I could make funnier jokes about myself than anyone else could. And I wasn't really picked on. And I always wonder now, looking back, kind of like you're saying, is if there's a subconscious thing that these kids are like, well, shit, if he can say that about himself, what can he say about me? And so it, I found it so disarming. Any, any time anyone started picking on me, I would say something and then they would end up laughing and that'd be it. It'd be done. Yeah. So it's probably exactly, you know, the same kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, you take away the ammunition. It's kind of like the Eminem rap song. You know, I don't know all the words, but he's talking about, what are you going to say about me now? Like, I know this. I'm okay with it. Um, and that's the thing. Like, most people aren't okay with their own insecurities. And that's why it holds them back. But I think once we love ourselves for who we are, and that's the message I try to get my kids and kids in general to understand is, look, we're not perfect. But that's what makes us so unique. It's funny. Like, as kids, they want to look like all their friends. Buy the same clothes, you name it. Then when we get adults, we don't want to look like anybody. We, we want a different haircut. We want some cool tattoos. You name it. And that's what I tell about. It's like, look, you're just jealous. Like, you wish you had a prosthetic ear and scars all over your body. There's nobody that looks like me out there on the beach. I can assure you of that. Yeah, it was funny because when we first met, the first Zoom call we all did, and you pulled your ear off. So that was the, yeah. the magic trick right off the bat. <laughs> but it's funny because my kids – they're just used to it. They, you know, 
But like when I go speak to their classroom at school, they always say, hey, dad, take your ear off. And of course, all the kids are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the teachers are just scared. They're like, what? We, we weren't prepared for this. Now never. And so I've taken it off, passed it around the class. I had a dad come up to me one night and say, hey, are you Maddox's dad? And I said, what do you do? They said, nothing. But you're. My son was telling me stories that Max's dad passed his ear around the class. <laughs> that was quite the dinner discussion. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I heard you as well talking about um, just harnessing the power that people have. And when I was listening to the interview, it really kind of resonated with me, something I've talked about a lot. In the fire service, we're held to a pretty good standard to become a firefighter. You know, most good fire academies really do beat the hell out of us. And, and my first, uh, department I got hired by, oh my God. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they held the, the bar super high and they need the stick to hold it even higher. So it really did set that crucible, um, you know, that, that bar to the point where we had to go up there and they would let people go. My, my uh, second department, Anaheim, was the same. That about 25% of the class would be let go in the first year, which is a hell of a high attrition rate. But they just were like, here it is. And then what I've seen kind of further on in my career is what I think is a completely um, backwards philosophy of if we make standards lower, more people will then come in and we can fill these seats. What is your perspective having this incredible journey that you have and overcoming adversity and, and using it as grit and, and harnessing your pain when you see physical standards, especially in professions, for example, where lives are at stake being dropped? Yeah, I've always believed the standards are the standards, right? Just like I had an issue when COVID set in, people were using that as an excuse to put on weight and get out of shape. I made a pledge myself. I want to be in the best shape possible during COVID. I want to be ready that when it's game time, I don't have to say, hey, I need a few months to get ready. I'm ready, coach. Right. And that's what, the way I believe life should be approached. Um, I've never believed in changing any standards. If if you need 100 people and only 10 of them meet it, then so be it. Just 10 of them get in. Um I think that's the problem with life is we keep changing our standards to accommodate the masses. And over time, we're just making ourselves weaker, you know, as a nation in general. Uh, That's the same thing like with parent, you know, people say, oh, you know, kids are different these days. Are they or is it just we let them be different? Like we intentionally do things at my house to implement grit, perseverance, like one of the things we always would do is so Friday nights, we do Mexican. The way home, we stop a quarter mile from home. I make all my kids get out of the car and run home. And people are like, I can't believe you do that. I said, they're used to it. Like that we started them at four years old. My four-year-old, she would run in sandals and they love it. And if you've got friends, they got to get out too. And the rule is once you get out, you can't get back in. I'm not coming back to get you. You just need to find your way home. But that's the way we raise our kids. You know, they just know, hey, look, life's tough. Mom and dad aren't going to always be there to bail us out. But what we also let them know is no matter how bad you fail, we will always love you. Like there's nothing you could do that I won't still love you. 
doesn't mean I won't be upset or mad or disappointed, but I'm always there if you need me. Uh, so I just feel like it's so easy for us now to change the standards to accommodate people. Uh, it's frustrating. Well, I think, you know, witnessing just, I mean, just look at life in general. So it's not any, you know, oh, I lived this, you know, hugely adverse life. I, I didn't. I was just a regular English boy living on a farm. So, but when I look back now to the creature comforts that I have and my son enjoys, it's different. You know, he, he's not out at two in the morning in, in the winter helping his veterinary dad lambing lambs or doing some emergency surgery. You know, it's, it was, uh, it was, it was unique. But my point is, we have created so much comfort and there's so, so many positives from that. But that, that discomfort bar is also lowered. And so, you know, we have to seek discomfort, whether it's Iron Man, whether it's, you know, jujitsu or, you know, whatever it is. I'm going up to the, the, uh, Go Ruck event in Jacksonville and there's going to be a whole bunch of different ways for people to suffer together. Um, but so rather than, giving people opportunities to rise up and, and keep in that bar high, that bar has followed the comfort level, I think. And you get this like, oh, you know, quarter of a mile. In my mind immediately, it was like, well, that's nothing, quarter of a mile. To some people, quarter of a mile is a huge thing. All the way around the track, I can't do that. And so I think that's the problem is after COVID, we saw the ill health of the nation, the underlying ill health of a lot of the nation that was taking so many lives. It breaks my heart that the message out of this hasn't been Let's come together and get everyone healthier. Let's move more. Let's eat better. Let's sleep better. And so that we can raise that bar back up so that we are more able. Because if we want, you know, able-bodied soldiers and firefighters and police officers, we need that pool of great men and women to be fit so that they can then step in that protector role or healer role or, you know, whatever role it is to, to make this country great, as we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, I think... You know, it's important. And I think a lot of it is just by living your lifestyle and sharing with others, encouraging them to take that path with you helps a lot. But what I tell people, I said, look, you know, as these standards are being dropped, if you keep yours the same, you have automatically just placed yourself in the top 1%. And there's so many things you can do. I mean, like we do stuff with, I say we, it's me because my wife's not a fan of it. Like we play freeze out in the car. So if it's below freezing outside, we roll the windows down in the car. And the rule is you can't roll it up until somebody starts screaming. <laughs> and it's usually my mother-in-law in the backseat screaming. Um, you know, we played burnout in the summer. You roll the windows up, crank the heat on. People are sweating. Uh, we do plank contests. I mean, just little stuff like that you can do to build up resilience. But I think we need more of it, you know, but I think it's also make an investment in people, you know, like if you see a friend that's slipping, reach out to him and say, Hey buddy, why don't you do this little 5k with me? I'm going to hold you accountable and checking in on people. You know, like I've got several people I said, Hey, why don't you do this? And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send you my workout plan. I'm going to call you tomorrow. You better have an update for me. If you don't respond, I'm going to call you the next day. If I have to show up at your house at 4 a.m., we're going to do it. I think that's what it is, just getting people to accept that accountability is the key. And whether it's having a friend, a spouse, or your kids, you need something bigger than yourself to do it. But also to understand that, look, nobody else can take care of you but you. And that's what people are always talking about. It's 
hey, I'm so busy, I don't have time. Well, guess what? Nobody else can do it but you. You know, you can't buy good health. Absolutely. No, I think that's, that's you know, the message that people just need to hear. And I think that community element too, and I talk about this a lot in the mental health space, you know, some of us are doing well through whatever reason, whether, you know, we were just fortunate to have great building blocks early in life, um, you know, or we've been through a dark place, come out the other side, then it's up to us to reach out to other people that aren't. Because, you know, behind closed doors, I've learned more so on this podcast than I ever would have realized before I started it. So many people are hurting. They really are. And that also manifests in a lack of motivation to eat well, lack of motivation to move. Yeah, and I think part of it is, too, it's, it's what we're consuming, whether we're reading or watching TV. Like, I absolutely refuse to read sad books where people are dying from cancer and horrible diseases. It doesn't mean I don't believe in it, but I want to read books of inspiration, people overcoming adversity. Because what I'm doing is training my brain that when bad things happen, not if, but when, my first reaction is I'm not going to die. My first reaction is, hey, remember that story. Remember, remember Ernest Shackleton, right? Or whoever it is. And immediately you, you have a plan to deal with it. And I think the more you can program yourself to accept that adversity is normal, that pain is normal, and it's part of the growth that you're going to, you know, endure pain. I think that's the first step, you know, but I think if you're one of those that watch all these reality shows and you see these fake lives, eventually your brain starts believing that's real life. And you're going to believe, hey, when if things don't work out, I just quit. Somebody's going to bail me out. You know, I don't subscribe to that. I don't watch it. I don't read it. I want no part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, so much positivity out there. And it's even with the social media. I mean, mine is, is groomed. There's no other, other way to describe it. You know, I, I don't follow or I unfollow things that are toxic. And now it's usually the stream of, again, not, not Instagram highlights, real, real people, real stories, but human beings that are very honest about their journey and, and who have, you know, overcome adversity and, and, you know, feel good stories and just things that, that nourish you. I don't want to go to my phone and feel worse than when I turned it on, unless there's something obviously that it affects my immediate, you know, family or community. But apart from that, I mean, even it's so sad, but even the Ukraine thing that's just pouring onto our screens, I mean, that is happening all over the world. I don't know why this particular thing all of a sudden is the latest kind of media clickbait. But those things are horrific. But sitting here in Ocala, Florida, I can't affect the Ukrainian invasion. We pay people that hopefully will assist in that. But what I can affect is how I raise my children and what I do in my yep. own community. Yeah, I'm a big believer. You got to stay focused, right? Control, focus on what you can, what you can control and everything else. Just let it go. Just like if you have toxic people in your life, sadly, you got to let them go. Because they will drag you down. Like in my inner circle, I only have people that are there to support and lift me up. I don't have people in my life that are negative. I just can't deal with them. I, I spent many years trying to help people that I thought I could help. But then I realized they didn't want the help. They were incapable of being helped, at least by me, until they wanted to be helped by themselves. I think that's the hard part of so many of us is we have a hard time saying no. And I think if you don't know what you really want in life, you get distracted. And that's one of the things like my buddy, Jack Daly, wrote a book, Life by Design. And he talks about 
if you map out what you want in life, it's pretty easy when you're approached by circumstances, you say, hey, will this contribute to me getting the life I want? Yes or no? If the answer is no, sorry, I'm not interested. Like if my buddies say, hey, Shay, Monday night, come meet us at the pub, watch football. Sorry, bud. This time with my family, you know, because my main focus is being a dad and a husband. Uh, and so I think that's what people realize. Like life is pretty simple if you can identify what you're focused on. But if you don't know, then you're aimlessly wandering around making bad choices. Yeah, I agree completely. And there's a, there's a lot of distractions out there. I mean, I love sports, but spectating sports sometimes can be a huge time consumer. And I see it, you know, with, with avid football fans. And you know, I had a conversation with someone, I forget who it was now, but it was, uh, I think it was Bedros Koulian, that's who it was. And he's like, it's sad when you can name the entire starting lineup of your favorite team and their stats, but you don't even know what your own body composition is. And I was like, damn, that is, <laughs> that is, that underlines exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. I've always been that way. Like people ask me stats, like, look, I'm too busy living my life to memorize everybody else's. Right. I can tell you my kids and myself, but other than that, I just don't have the bandwidth to get that consumed with it. Absolutely. Well, you talked about having amazing people around you. So let's talk about Ryan Parrott. How did you meet Ryan? And then I know there was a kind of interaction with Sons of the Flag with them being a burn charity. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. So right at the beginning of COVID, uh, another guy, Ryan Hyman, reached out and said, hey, you got to meet Birdman, Ryan Parrott. Dude, this guy's just like you, he's full throttle, Navy SEALs, always doing something awesome. But more importantly, he's got a foundation, Sons of the Flag, that's focused on burn care for veterans. And so I connect with Ryan during COVID, hit it off, and he's like, man, it's hard to believe, you know, you're 46 at the time, you're still ongoing surgeries. Why don't you go through my foundation? We will get you the best care. We've put together this amazing panel of elite burn specialists all around the country. But with COVID made it hard, like we did telehealth, but it's just not the same as being face-to-face. And then a year and a half later, something said, look, take action. Like, you know, you need the surgery, go do it. And so I called, you know, we had communicated a few times between them, but he said, Hey, all right, I'm going to get you an appointment. Go see these guys. So I flew down to Tampa, met with the doctors Two months later, I'm having this massive surgery. When I say massive, it's an eight-hour surgery. It's I've been approached with it for years, but it's, it's pretty risky. Um, it's called a skin flap. So they take one section of your body, its own blood supply, fatty tissues, everything, transplant it to another part of your body, and then graft the blood vessels into each other. What's amazing is when they do it, that skin now is real skin. It grows, it shrinks, it stretches just like your normal skin, whereas all these skin grafts I've had before did not do that. You know, they would shrink about 65% of the original size. Uh, so as part of that process, you know, that's when Ryan said, hey, and by the way, I want to do something pretty amazing for my birthday, but I want to see how can we leverage this event to ven- benefit the veteran community? How can we impact mental health? So that's when he told me about Human Performance 7X, and that's where they were going to 
skydive or base jump, run a marathon, swim, sea, air, land, all seven continents, seven days. And he said, are you in? I was like, hell yeah. Like, how do you say no to that? Of course, the conversation, my wife went a little differently. She's like, (laughs) how did you say yes to that? (laughs) But she goes, look, I'm done. Like, you go do it. Let me know when it's over. But yeah, he's just a different guy. But we're wired so much like I completely get it, you know, and we've had some really deep talks talking about like having your tribe in life. Now, it's one of the things about, you know, being in the military is like you've got your tribe. Like you knew no matter how tough things got, like you could count on your tribe. Right. You put your life in their hands. And that's what's so hard when like for me, my tribe was always my sporting teams. And then when you come out of these environments, like who's your tribe now? And that's what he's, you know, talking about. Uh, just phenomenal. That's a great human, uh, completely, I think, divine intervention that we got connected. And then we'll be doing this 7X challenge in February 2023. Now, I think you just had the surgery when we had our very first conference. Is that right? So you, please correct me if I'm wrong. You had it on the neck, so then you were able to have more mobility of your head? Yeah, so my neck had got so tight that I couldn't tilt my head back and drink water. If I turned my head to the left, I couldn't hear. And it was pulling my face, you know, my mouth, my eye. I mean, it was bad. It had been bad for eight years. Um, So I had this major surgery. And so for six weeks, really wasn't even allowed to turn my head. But I could cycle, and that was it, and walk on the treadmill. And then, you know, once I hit that six-week mark, I don't know if I shared with you last time, a week later, I took my dog for a bike ride in the park. His leash snagged a sign, threw me over the handlebars, broke my collarbone and two ribs, and I had to get a plate put in one inch below that skin graft I just had inserted. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Well, that's taking the positive, too, because the negative would oh. be like, I can't believe I broke my collarbone. But the positive is like, at least it wasn't by my skin graft. Oh, I mean, I got so lucky, really, you know. Uh, but you know, I'm back to running like yesterday, 12 and a half mile run biking 60 miles, no problem. So I'm racing four weeks from this weekend, my first half Ironman for the year. Amazing. Now with you having a perspective, I had uh, EJ Caterson on, um, who's, you know, one of the plastic surgeons that also works with sons of the flag. What now, as a burn injured child, you know, who grew into a man, um, what have you seen? Because Ryan talked about the initial soldier that he met that spurred this whole thing where it didn't appear that he was able to get the highest level of care for his burns. What are you seeing with, you know, maybe, for example, some of our, our veterans and then, and then what Sons of the Flag is able to do, excuse me, what Sons of the Flag is able to do for our responders and our veterans? Yeah, so I can't really speak from the veteran community other than it's obviously an underserved community. But just even as a private citizen who has phenomenal health care, it's expensive. You know, these out-of-pocket costs, like this surgery uh, is over half a million dollars to have done. Think about it, one surgery, half a million. And then the out-of-pocket cost is pretty substantial. Like I couldn't leave this city for three weeks 
I was in the hospital for seven days and couldn't leave for two weeks after that. And that's where Sons of the Flag steps in. It's like they cover all the costs not covered through insurance. Like, who can do that? Who's got the money to set aside three weeks of hotels and for a loved one to be there with you? Uh, And that's what people are saying. Like, just the care alone is one thing. But then when you get into the out-of-pocket expenses, time away from family, I mean, it's a lot, right? And it's not a one-time event. I mean, it's I'm 40 years into this journey still having surgeries. You know, my prosthetic ear, every six months to a year, I have to get it fixed again. And it's always something, but it's just part of your new normal. But the stuff they're doing, I mean, they've paired you with people that this is all they do. Like this skin flap I had, this doctor does it every single week. You know, when I was looking at this years ago, you talk to people and they say, yeah, I've done a couple of, I don't want to be number three, number four. (laughs) I want to be number 300, number 400 that you've done. And that's where Sons of Flag, like they found the people are the best at this level of care. Like this surgeon told me, he said, it took us three hours just to remove the skin from your back because I didn't want to damage any of your muscles because I knew you were still competing. Think about that. Three hours just to remove the skin. You know, most people, like when they have this done, they have it taken from their leg and you just accept you're going to have some muscle atrophy. I can tell you I'm competing now, at least on my bike and running. I'm back at the speeds I was back before surgery. All because this guy had the level of expertise and care to make sure he didn't damage any of the surrounding tissue. Yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, you have such a unique lens when it comes to the the mental journey, the physical journey. So 7X, as we touched on, is the actual kind of pinnacle event that's going to test the athletes is going to break them down but obviously the human performance project is a year-long study that ultimately will become a manual for responders military you know anyone in the tactical profession to prepare for endure and then reset from what we do so talk to me about that whole concept through your eyes yeah so i'm excited because number one i think um my background's a little unique Because so everywhere I'm burned, I can't sweat. So where I've had these skin grafts, a third of my body, I physically cannot sweat. I have no sweat glands. So the other two thirds, I can't stop sweating. So I've done sweat studies and calculated I can sweat five pounds an hour for 10 hours straight in a race. Think about that. Now, to be able to continue competing at that level, you know, I know I have to drink 1.5 liters every hour for 10 hours straight. Try that. It's harder than you think it is to train your gut to process that amount of fluid. And so to be able to take this and do it every single day for seven days straight, I mean, it's going to be a a big test for me physically. Like when I do the Ironman, I'm usually urinating blood at the finish. That's how dehydrated my body gets from the elements. And so I think my data will provide a different perspective, you know, as a burn trauma patient and my inability to thermoregulate my body count. So I'm excited to see what this data says, you know, all the blood panels and everything. I'm excited to learn how to bring in the nutrition elements that Ryan has been really careful to focus on. Because sadly, I mean, we're not the best eaters in my house. We do what we can. 
but we know there's a lot of room for improvement. So I'm excited to see how this plays out. No, it's amazing. I mean, firstly, with the nutrition side, we've got Thorn on board and they've been actually a sponsor of the show for a while because they're the best. And the sad thing is most people haven't heard of Thorn. People watching the UFC might see them on the, on the octagon wall now, but, um, they're the official sponsor. I mean, excuse me, official supplement of CrossFit, of the UFC, of most of the major league teams. But you go to GNC and you're going to see all your, you know, Instagram influencer brands that aren't yeah. very good. They're just not, they're not as good. Um, but uh from the the sweating perspective and i meant to ask you this when i heard you discuss this on the other podcast um it's it's slight, i mean it's very different but the one thing that i struggle with my fitness has always been good my strength has always been good i have worked so hard to to overcome my physical um limitations as a smaller you know slimmer man to become a, a firefighter uh, but originally from england as well as we talked about with scotland you probably know i'm not exposed to that much heat back where I was born and bred. So it was actually the thermoregulation for me. Our bunker gear, the gear that we wear, does not let you offset any heat. I mean, it totally encapsulates it because it's designed to to have a moisture barrier and keep heat out so that we don't burn to death. Um, but conversely, obviously, that, that totally screws you up as an athlete inside that gear. So with you not being able to sweat, you know, a third of your body and then obviously having the excessive sweat the other way, what are there any tools or or even mindset elements that allow you to either thermoregulate or overcome what i know is is the immense discomfort of feeling like you're you know cooking because i mean when i'm in bunker gear there's times where i literally feel like my organs are cooking which is not a good feeling yeah i mean i feel like they're cooking almost the whole race you know um but i just learned hey this is it right like so i intentionally train in the heat like when it was 107 in Nashville, it was a record heat. I put on thermal sweatpants, I mean, thermal layering, you know, um, long johns and a toboggan and gloves and went for an eight mile run just to mentally toughen up. But one of the things I've done is like, I'm on top of my nutrition. Like I said, I'm drinking a liter and a half every single hour. Like I know I cannot miss. I'm taking in 2,400 milligrams of sodium an hour. I'm taking in 250 to 300 calories an hour. Like I have spent months, I've worked with dietitians, but I also know like if I start feeling certain things, if I start feel a twinge of a, a cramp, back off. Like trying to push through that stuff isn't going to help you. You need to listen to it. Like I watch my heart rate 100%. Like I know. When I'm racing, once I get to about 162, if I try to sustain higher than a 162 for hours, I'm setting myself up for failure. And so I'm constantly looking at my heart rate. When I feel like a cramp twinging, I back down, reassess. It's just learning how to listen to your body and recognize those cues and recognize, hey, this is seriously your body saying it's going to shut down if you don't listen. And other times it's just your body saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable, but you can keep going. I think that's where just experience sets in, but I'm very metric driven. Like when I'm bike riding, I know what wattage I can hold for five hours. When I'm running, I know what pace and what heart rate I can hold for five hours. So just understand like what you can and can't do and don't try to cheat science. Like it works. I mean, it's there for a reason. Um, but like with what Ryan's doing in the whole, you know, human performance, 
it's allowing everybody to tap into that science. There's so much amazing science that most of us haven't been afforded that now will be our disposal that once we can prove this stuff out, the entire military community, I think, can benefit from it. Absolutely. Well, there's another small subset of people who, you know, I think it, we need to be aware of and, and, and almost worry about. So my population, you know, fire and police and, and all the responders, we have these crazy, you know, shifts that we work, the, the fire department specifically, usually it's a 56 hour work week, every third day, you're awake, probably most of 24 hours. Um, and then you get this, you know, wake up at five, crush every day, you know, work, 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 I'm going to go do, you know, this 24, whatever, 48 hour, whatever, which is great if you understand the rest and recovery element. But what I right. see is the potential of burnout, the potential of overtraining and ultimately injury. So you got where you were in the endurance world because of your grit, because of your fortitude. How do you monitor yourself to when you need rest and recovery? And then what are some of the recovery tools that you kind of lean into? Yeah. So I think that's probably the biggest mistake amateurs make is we think more is better, no pain, no gain. And you don't learn to recognize, hey, my body's run down. So I use an app that measures all the training stress on my body. And so when you see those numbers, I mean, this is legitimate. It's the load you've put on your body. And so when you see those numbers, you say, look, I need to take a day off. Um, I spent a couple of years logging every night how many hours I slept. I got up to urinate in the middle of the night, the color of the urine, all, all that stuff. And then the quality of the sleep. I know it's neurotic, but it's very insightful. And that's what you realize. Like Sleep is one of the biggest components to fitness. And so sometimes you learn, hey, look. I'm better off skipping a workout and getting an extra hour and a half of sleep than I am doing the workout. It seems counterintuitive, but man, it pays much higher dividends. There was a, an age group champion years ago, one Ironman and Ironman 70.3, who only trained 14 hours a week. And his biggest secret, he said, was rest. And that's what turned me on to log in my sleep. He said, look, I look at this. If I'm not sleeping... I either skip the workouts or, you know, change my workload. But I think that's what has the biggest impact. And then the second biggest piece to me is the mental side of it. Some of us age groupers, we get so caught up in, hey, the workout says this. And so you're struggling all day to get your workout. In. And what happens is you're not really present as a parent or as a spouse. And so I asked a pro who's, you know, been top three in the world. I said, you know, what's your recommendation to age groupers on training? He said, I think you're better off being 80% fit, 100% family happy than 100% fit and 80% family happy. He goes, because that extra 20% fitness, you can make up for just because your overall health and wellness is there. I think that's the key, right? Don't overtrain. You're better off being undertrained, but living a life where you feel like, you know, you're there. You're being the person you want to be. I love that. Absolutely love that. And I think that mirrors someone was saying the other day, and it was it was basically, you know, we we always 
think that we're supposed to be given 100%. I mean, that's what the, the phrase says. But as you age, um, I think we're exactly the same age. I was born in 74 as well. What I've realized, firstly, in the whole sporting world, the, the, well, the training world, we realize that less is more a lot of times, whether it's in a number of workouts, whether it's head trauma, whatever it is. But, um, you know, the other thing is, if you train to about 80%, unless, of course, you know, there's, there's people like yourself that are competing at the highest, highest level, but everyone else, the average person, even if you're, you know, a firefighter or a police officer, if you shoot for more like 80%, your chances of overtraining and injury are a lot less. Your fitness is still going to be excellent. But that last, you know, what, what that last 10%, let's say 90%, that last 10% costs a lot of elite athletes just isn't worth it for the average person, especially my profession where our bodies put food on the table. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and it's like, I have a rich, like I go get a deep tissue massage once a month. I go get like a deep foot massage. People laugh. They're like, what? I'm like, you would not believe if you have somebody that really needs the bottom of your feet, how much stress accumulates in your feet, take care of your feet. Um, and then like my wife, she is a great check and say, Hey, look, you're awful grouchy. You need to kind of taper off a little bit. You know, I think you're overtraining. Again, these are all just kind of safety mechanisms to let me know, Hey, it's time to dial it back a little bit. But like with any big event, you always have like a week or two where you're kind of out of balance to hit that peak fitness to allow you to recover, to be ready for an event. Well, just circling around, I want to touch on one more topic and then go to some, some closing questions. But we were talking before we started recording and it really did resonate with me when we go to your website. We talk about, you know, the, briefly about the, the, the burn injuries themselves and the journey through and then all these accolades that you have and, and the incredible 1% racking that you have in the Ironman world. But then very, very loud and proud at the end is, is that your biggest achievement is being a father of five. So talk to me about that. A lot of people, as you said, get focused on, you know, the end goal and, you know, maybe do the 100% performance, 80% family. So talk to me about that journey and, and, and you know, what fatherhood, excuse me, what fatherhood has meant to you. Yeah, for, for me, it's everything. Number one, as a kid, I never thought I'd be a dad. I never thought I'd find a woman to overlook all my scars and marriage. So I realized what a blessing it is, what a gift it is. And you realize, look, this competing, it's great. The medals, the trophies, your kids don't love you anymore because of it. My kids have no idea about rankings and medals. They see it, but you know what matters to them? Your dad. Hey, dad, will you go bike ride with me? Hey, dad, will you go camp with me? That's what matters to them. It's not, you know, all these cool events. Again, I do this stuff to kind of demonstrate to them the lifestyle that's there for them. But, you know, my number one job is to be a dad and show them, model for them, how life should be led. You know, to live it without fear, to have the courage to accept failure and keep pushing forward. And there's so much that I think I can teach them through my own failures. And I hope they can learn through that. But sadly, most of us have to experience it firsthand. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I didn't learn through my dad's mistakes either. Oh, hell no. I didn't learn a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do hope is by them seeing me go through these situations and how we've come on the other side, they can understand that this is part of life. 
we have highs and lows. It's not always the good times. And it's never a time just to quit and give up. You know, I was fortunate enough. I've got an amazing dad. He's one of these guys who would give you the shirt off his back. And one of the things, you know, I had the fortune, he and I were business partners for years. But when I got into the Ironman World Championships in Kona 2012, I wanted to use that experience to have an impact on him. My dad's one of those always put everybody first in their, his life above his own health. He always had an excuse. Hey, I'm too tired. I'm doing this. So when I got in, it was four months before the actual race day. I called him at work and said, Hey dad, I've made you an appointment with this weight loss clinic. He was about 70 pounds overweight. Like me short five, seven. I've made you an appointment. Tonight at 6.30, I've already prepaid the first six months with your credit card. Because we all know if you don't have skin in the game, you're going to quit. And I said, if you're tempted to quit, call mom and my sister and tell her you quit. It's too hard. Because I told him you're going to do it. Fast forward four months later, he shows up in Kona to cheer me on at the Ironman. Two days before the race, they have what's called the underpants run. And you're supposed to run in your underwear, ideally tidy whities to make fun of all the Europeans who think it's acceptable to go around town in your Speedos to go shopping and eating. <laughs> and so there's a picture of my dad and I. It's in my book. We're in our tidy whities My dad lost 45 pounds over those four months. And he said, son, this means so much to me. Number one, to be here cheering you on. But number two, my biggest fear my whole life is to be in public in my underwear. And now I'm not only doing it, I'm paying to do it as part of this charity event. That meant the world to me, right? It was to be able to give him back something that he wasn't willing to give himself. And that's what I think we're supposed to do in life is help people get to that finish line. Absolutely. That's that's absolutely incredible. And it's funny when you talk about the, the Speedos, I worked on the summer camp in upstate New York. I think I talked about it before. Um, and the very first year I went, I'll never forget this. I was a lifeguard. So, um, it was a music camp. So we ran the whole waterfront for him. And I remember getting on the dock for the first like swim test that we were going to do. And I lowered my shorts and I had my speedos underneath. Every American lifeguard laughed in a cackle. <laughs> I've still traumatized water by to this day. I pulled my shorts back up. And then bought some board shorts and never wore speedos again. But yeah, I mean, that was normal in Europe. <laughs> I can attest. Yeah. So I, I bought one when we've been to Europe. Like we were in Nice, France. You know, and so I was like, hey, you know, when in France, you know, you do what the French do. My wife's like, but you can't wear that when you get home. Not, not you and I hang out together. Uh, I love it, man. Well, I went to, we went skiing. Um, my whole family met in France and actually at that public bathing, you know, pool, you had to wear speedos. So they had like the kind of boxer short type speedos. So it wasn't quite as, uh, yep. banana hammock esque, but, um, yeah. So I did end up buying another pair, but that was because I was for that and a swim cap. You have to wear a swim cap too, but yeah, I'll never forget, uh, my second Ironman. I was complaining to my wife how cold it was. Because the outside temp was like 45 degrees and the water was like 60. 
And so I was going to go do a wetsuit practice swim. And I looked out the window into the ocean. There's a man, he had to be 65 in a speedo, just walking out like it's nothing. Here I am putting on my wetsuit, my thermal, you know, my thermal cap. She was like, you big wuss. Look at that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just touched on one thing. I want to kind of visit before we, we go to the closing ones. Um, Something that someone said to me recently, and it resonated so deeply, was they said, choose your heart. said, training is hard, but being overweight is hard. You know, having issues that you have to take medication for is hard. So I think that's a message that's not really delivered. And it's interesting, especially because you you were in the medical space yourself for a long time. But it's going to be hard either way. So if you're able to get your head around the concept that, I'm going to do the hard that's actually going to pay dividends. It's going to make me better. It's going to allow me to play with my kids or go, you know, swim in my underpants while I watch my my son do an Ironman. That is such a powerful message because it's not like one way is easy. It's not. These poor people that are, you know, morbidly obese, that is not the way the body was designed to be. And And it breaks my heart. You know, it's not about fat shaming or anything. I truly feel sad because I know the potential that that human being has in, in so many different areas in life. So, you know, is that something that you kind of view or have a, a philosophy on that it's going to be hard either way? So, and if so, how, how do we frame it in a way that people will realize that and, and maybe start making choices that will push them back towards the healthy side? Yeah, I agree hundred percent. You know, it's one of the things I use with all my friends. I said, look, like you take pride in being a dad. Don't you want to be able to throw the football, the American football? Don't you want to be able to throw the football with your son, run with them? You know, do you want to be the dad at the neighborhood pool that you're sitting there with your shirt on because you're scared to take your shirt off? Not me. I want to rip my shirt off, right? All my wives say, yeah, that's my guy, you know? <laughs> Maybe I've got the deep widow's peak and stuff, but I don't want to be scared to take my shirt off. And it's like I tell my wife, you know, what's better? visiting Nice, France, or biking the Tour de France course in Nice, France. How do you want to experience life? Do you want to be the person that's in a car driving through it? Or do you want to be the person that's biking and running through it? I want to be the guy that's biking and running through it. That's what I'm going to remember. And it's, you know, you realize your health, you can never get back. You know, and you'll spend your whole life medicating, trying to have the lifestyle that you could have had if you'd invested 30 minutes a day working out, you know, you just, it's completely different experience, but people just don't know how to tap into it. And so one of the things I try to walk through people, don't get so caught up in where you want to be a year from now, focus on what do you need to do tomorrow? So one of the questions I ask people is, do you think you could do an Ironman? No way. I said, if you try it, they said, no, I just know I can't. I said, tell you what, if we met tomorrow, could you do a run walk for 20 minutes? Not judging on speed, can you run walk for 20? They said, sure. What if we met the next day? Could you bike for 40 minutes? Not judging on speed, could you ride a bike, pedal coast 40 minutes? Sure. Well, guess what? In those 40 weeks of progressive building, You'd be an Ironman. 100%. I've got the plan. I can send it to you. But you told me you couldn't do it. But once I mapped it out daily, what you had to do, you said you could do it. And that's the way 
life works. Just like if somebody said, hey, this is where it's going to take to be a parent. You're like, hell no, no way I could do it. But once you jump in it, there's no backing out. You get through it, right? You start over each day. And that's what I think people just need help getting started. Let that momentum kick in. Don't focus on where you got to be three months from now. What do you need to do tomorrow? Spend 15 minutes. Don't kill yourself. Don't go out the first day and try to run five miles. Start small and build on it. You know what? I love the fact that you just used parenting as an analogy as well. Like none of us have any idea what we're going to do. One day we go to the hospital with our wife. The next day we leave with a baby. And then, as you said, you, you're not thinking, Oh, am I going how good is he going to be at algebra? You're thinking, I've got to change a diaper for the first time. So I love that analogy. Think of it like your firstborn. If you're a parent, just, you know, jump in with both feet and just start with something that you are, you know, you have a 24 hour plan. And like you said, obviously you can expand it as you get more comfortable. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a great way of doing it. And it goes back to your mindset as a child, overcoming your burn injuries. You weren't looking years ahead. You weren't thinking one day I'm going to, you know, be running, swimming and biking on Kona. You were just trying to get through that next abriding, you know, uh, episode and, and get to the next phase. Yeah, it's all about just make that commitment like parenthood, like you've committed to being a parent. There's no backing out. There's no do overs. And that's what it is. Say, so, hey, I'm going to live a healthy lifestyle. Just commit to it. It's not that hard, and it becomes as much as your daily ritual as brushing your teeth, right? But you just got to push through it those first few months to get you started. Absolutely. Well, it's been an amazing conversation. I want to just throw some uh, closing questions at you before I let you go if you have time. Sure. So the first one I love to – actually, before I do that, I'm sorry. Um, so the first thing before we get to recommendations from other people's books, talk to me about what the fire ignited, the book that you wrote. So it's the book talking about my life story. For me, life really started when I got burned at eight. It was a game changer, right? It could have been the biggest trauma to ever happen, but it was really the biggest blessing to ever have in my life. And so I just walk people what that was like, like trying to reclaim my life as an eight-year-old, as an athlete, and deciding what was my identity going to be? How, what did I want to be known as? And then just putting that plan in place. Um, one of the things I think a lot of people don't know. So my daughter at the time was 13. She came up with the title. And then if you look at on the book cover, there's a tattoo with two lines and five dots that represents my wife and I and our five kids. It's a tattoo on my wife's forearm. Um, so it's kind of neat to be able to intermingle things that have personal significance in there because I believe everybody's got a story. You don't have to be an Iron Man or a firefighter or a SEAL to have an amazing story. Everybody's got a story that's worthy of telling. And I truly feel like everybody should tell their story because I guarantee you it can help somebody get through their current struggles. Absolutely. So where can people find the book? The easiest way is just go to Amazon, What the Fire Ignited. You can also go to my website, shaysq.com, S-H-A-Y-E-S-K-E-W.com. But all of it will point you back to Amazon. Brilliant. No, it's, I mean, it's such an incredible story. I know we've only scraped the surface of it as well. So, and I think that's, that's the point. I mean, all these books you can see behind me, most of those are biographies. Um, because I find that, you know, they say fact is, fact is not better than fiction, whatever the word is, um, whatever the phrase is. But yeah, I mean, 
the the real life stories would blow your mind and there are some amazing you know fictional stories too but each one of these human stories has so much and it's the same with these podcasts i mean this is basically storytelling in an audio setting and and it's absolutely amazing so i i'm looking forward to reading your book so thank you for that recommendation um so with other people's books are there any other books that you love to recommend i think you told me um let me see uh life by design so um by Jack. Um, you know, one of the books I love is Endurance, the story of Ernest Shackleton. It's known as the greatest adventure in the history of the world. You know, they're stuck in Antarctica for two years, early 1900s. Like if you want a testament to just human will to survive, 100%. Hands down, you got to read it. I think Born to Run is a phenomenal book too. This is a guy that set out trying to prove that not everybody can run. This guy was over 200 pounds, like six, three. And then through his research, he realized if you run naturally, which means like if you're a midfoot, flat foot runner, uh, anybody can do it. It's just learning. You know, most of us were trained improperly on how to run. Um, Those are two big life changers. Um, Also like the book devoted it's a story of Rick and Dick Hoyt. Son was, you probably have seen it, maybe didn't realize it, but the son was born with cerebral palsy. And the dad signed up to do a 5K with his son in a wheelchair. Then the joy he saw his son experience crossing the finish line convinced him to do a thousand other races. Like they did an Ironman swimming 2.4 miles with his son in a boat biked 112 miles with a son on the front of a bike and then ran a marathon, pushing him in a wheelchair. I think those three would be a good start. I've got a whole list, but those are three that I would start off with. Well, what's one of the most, uh, I guess, biggest honors of myself, you know, having this podcast is I had Dick Hoy on probably six months before he passed away. You kidding? Yeah. Episode, uh, 293. So yeah, I mean, absolutely amazing. And he was a, a military veteran and yeah, such a, I mean, so again, I mean, how you couldn't make that up, you know, but what those two did and, you know, you talk about fatherly love, it's such a powerful story. Yeah. And it's that whole story, them fighting to get him in public schools and, uh, but everybody else's lives, they changed because they chose to ask the question, what if, right? What if we did this? Uh, I love it, man. It's just, I used to always watch their video before my races the night before. Just to remind me how lucky I am. I think that's one of the things we all lose sight of is the gifts in our life. Once you can really have a heart of gratitude, like one of the things I love doing before every surgery, you'll find me working out in the room. This last surgery, I was doing push-ups in the room right before they put the IVs in because I want my last memory to be, hey, if I can't do these push-ups when I wake up, I did them up until the last minute. I think that's the way you need to learn to live life. It's live each day as if it's your life. I mean, your last. You'll have no regrets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned books. What about movies and or documentaries? Any of those that you love? So probably my one of my absolute favorite movies is Cinderella Man. I love because to me it's just everything that I subscribe to. It's when you hit rock bottom, you're humbled, and but God can also use that as a time to change 
who you are to make you better. And so it's a story, as you know, he had to relearn how to become a better boxer, you know, and through a series of adversity, reclaimed his title, title as heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, I just love it. Everything about it. Um, it's gut wrenching. Um, Braveheart's a big one of mine. I mean, how do you not love Braveheart, right? And here's a guy that no matter what's thrown at him, just still overcomes it. Um, and he's a man driven because the love of his, for his kids and his wife. He was able to endure as opposed to just taking an easy way out and killing himself. You know, he said, Hey, I'm doing this because I'm doing it for my family. Absolutely. Well, the next question then, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I think you would love having Jack Daly. He's a retired uh, army captain. He's done a hundred marathons, all seven continents. Uh, the guy's 73 and still, I mean, he just did a marathon in Greece last year. He sounds perfect. Uh, and he's, one of those that's been a mentor to me. He's he's the real deal. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that, I'd love to make that happen if you're able to help me connect with him. Yeah, I can absolutely connect you with him. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, then we kind of touched on it slightly, but um, one more question before we get to where people can find you online, aside from the website. What do you do to decompress? You know, my big thing, like, I love the outdoors. Uh, I just love being outside. I love hiking. Um, we had a tree house built at our house out in the backyard. I actually worked out of this tree house. I had air conditioning and heat added to it, cable, TV, like Wi-Fi ran. I just love being out there away from everybody. So that's my biggest thing. That's kind of my jam. You get me out in nature. Uh, my wife will tell you, drives her crazy. because I'm like, God, is this not amazing? Like, <sighs> you feel it? You know, she's like, God, you're so annoying. Uh, <laughs> but that, and just, you know, I, I love just being with the kids. You know, I love when we can go off exploring. Like we did a boys trip in the height of COVID. I took my three boys to Steamboat, Colorado. We'd wake up every morning at six, eating breakfast, 630 by seven. We were outside. We went hiking. We went whitewater rafting, zip lining. We did uh, repelling. I mean, you name it. Anything outdoors, that's all we did for five days straight from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. And I just think that's the way life's supposed to be spent. Like, I'm not a person that enjoys just sitting inside watching TV. That's the most painful thing I could ever endure. Uh, if you really want to torture me, make me watch a long movie. I'll probably be asleep in the first 10 minutes. I just think it's supposed to be experienced, you know, with people you care about. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was sadly, again, going back to the two years, that was the opposite of what the message was. It was stay at home, watch TV, order your food, get it brought to you, rather than get sunshine, get fresh air, get exercise, you know, maybe catch yeah. something that you eat, you know, and it was, it was, it was such a great opportunity to really divulge some middle of the road, common sense, wellness information. Aside from if you choose to immunize or not, I mean, that's a separate conversation, but un underlying health. And then it was completely blown. Yeah. People listen again. I had the benefit, like the six months I spent trapping the bears. I was not sick one day in six months, one day. 
Well, one, we weren't allowed sick days because we had bears potentially caught. But honestly, I never got sick because I was out in nature 12, 14 hours a day. You know, I think we underestimate just how powerful Mother Nature can be as a healer. Yeah, I think so, too. Absolutely. And then also, you know, discomfort. I think that too much comfort can actually cause disease. So the, the discomfort that comes from Mother Nature, the extreme heat, the extreme cold, being wet, um, you know, creates resilience in human beings. So if we box ourselves in and wrap ourselves in cotton wool, we're setting ourselves up for failure. I agree. You know, it's uh, like when we do these big family vacations, I've learned the secret is don't always tell my wife exactly what we have planned because it gives her a chance to say no. But like we did a trip to Yosemite. And I didn't tell her that to go see the sequoias because we were going in March. We'd have to hike through snow. I knew that would not be excitable for her. So I didn't tell her. So we show up tennis shoes and blue jeans. (laughs) And everybody else has snowshoes they're getting out of the car. My wife goes, I'm going to kill you. I said, hey, babe, it's okay. I said, look, sorry, kids. Dad made a mistake. Let's just go home. She's like, you're an asshole. There's no way we can just go home. (laughs) (laughs) So we did, I don't know, six miles hiking in the snow and tennis shoes. You know, I mean, other people would walk, so it was compact. But I was like, we would have missed out on this had I told you exactly what you're in for. And so that's kind of what I found (laughs) that works for me and my marriage and just life in general. It's don't give me all the information. I don't want a chance to say no. Like when I had this big surgery. I waited until they had the IV soaked up and rolled me back. They said, look, you know, you can't eat for the next two days after surgery too. I didn't know that. I didn't want to know that because that would have been sad. (laughs) They also said, we have to draw on your body somewhere else in case the skin doesn't work, that we can rush you back in and harvest another section out of your body. Again, these are things I don't need to know that. I just need to know, look, whatever it takes, I'm in. And that's kind of the way I live my life. Like, I can't let these details derail me from making the right decision. Well, I think that's the other thing with fear is our minds are so good at giving us the worst case scenario. And a perfect example, I, I did a skydive years ago in, in New Zealand and completely being completely honest, I metaphorically and physically shit myself in a McDonald's bathroom prior to it. And then by the time I hit the ground, I was like, that was amazing. Where do I sign up to learn how to be an instructor? And it was yeah. all those mind games. So yeah, I mean, of course you want the information to make a good decision, but if you, if you analyze it too much, you probably talk yourself out of whatever it was you're going to do. I think that's what happens to most people in life in general. It's the what ifs. And like people love to come to me and say, well, what if this fails? I'm like, what if it's the most amazing thing you've ever done your whole life? You know? Well, I didn't think about that. Why not? If you're going to think about the what could go wrong, think about what could be so amazing you couldn't even contemplate. And if you approach everything that way, you would do everything. But it's just taking that leap of faith and saying, you know what? No matter how it turns out, I'm going to commit to making it right. And they talk about that's the key to successful entrepreneurs. It's not that they make the right decisions. They make a decision. Then when things don't work out, they commit to getting it right. But it's the ones who sit there and debate it internally in their head and never make a decision. Mm -hmm. And then life passes them by. 
paralysis by analysis, as they say. Yes. Brilliant. Well, for people listening, I'm sure they want to learn more. You mentioned the website. Um, where else are you online? Are you any social media handles? I know we connect on Instagram, for example. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a big thing like I post almost daily is at LinkedIn. So it's just Shay Eskew on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's Mr. Shay, letter S, letter Q, which is the phonetic spelling of my last name. And it's just Shay Sq you know, on Facebook. Brilliant. Well, Shay, I just want to say thank you. I mean, yet another amazing conversation. There's so many human beings on this uh, human performance project team. But with this community, a lot of us obviously deal with fire more than the average person. I even wrote about a a horrific burn injured patient that I had in in the book that I wrote last year. Um, And to, to hear such a tragic story that, you know, as parents, both of us, we would just be mortified to happen to our child to where you are now and what you've done with that adversity and that pain is so damn inspiring. So firstly, I'm super excited to sit next to you on this plane and watch you run while I just document. (laughs) But secondly, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Hey, I appreciate it. I said, I feel blessed to have the opportunities I have. I've had so many amazing supporters, uplifters, coaches, mentors, Um, in my life to keep me going and, you know, keep me focused on the things that really matter.